Amen. How y'all doing this morning? Good. It's such a such a uh, a privilege uh, to be before you again. I had the awesome privilege of uh, joining you guys back in August and uh, being here again um, with the invitation of Pastor Brandon uh, Watts. Uh, it's such a joy, such a joy and a privilege. So uh, praise God. Um, man, let's, uh, let's stand and read God's word and just jump on in. So if you would, um, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Uh, for those that, that, that don't know me, I am Pastor Curtis Dunlap. I bring you greetings from Epiphany Fellowship Church in Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> I got some of my, my leaders here, uh, Ebony and Mike. I didn't know they were going to be here, so I was surprised to see them this morning. Um, but I bring you greetings uh, from Epiphany Fellowship Church. We are praying for you guys, excited for all that God is doing uh, with you. It's so great to see some familiar faces. And so uh, let's, let's go ahead and, and, and jump in. Uh, if you would, uh, I'm going to start us off verse 25, and then I'm going to have you guys jump in with me, and then we'll end up uh, in verse uh, 20, uh, 37. Uh, and the, the word of the Lord reads as thus, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Come on and read with me. And he said to him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Keep going. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all Keep going, down 37. If I could uh, title our message this morning, it would be, Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you as humble servants, knowing that each time we open your word, you have instruction for us. You have encouragement for us. You have challenge for us, for your word says that, that all of God's word is profitable for teaching, for 
uh, equipping for training and righteousness so that we might be presented as mature in Christ and ready to do every good work. And so, Father, we pray the same this morning, that your word would go out and pierce each and every one of our hearts, that it would change and transform our minds, that we might be made mature as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might prove, that we might prove to be your disciples by the love that we show one another. Help us today, Lord, uh, to really, really work through this word that you have for us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When Pastor Brennan called me uh, uh, about a month or so ago and asked me to uh, preach to you uh, this morning, he said, Pastor Kurt, I'm not going to be in town, uh, and I need you to come preach uh, for me on November 13th. And if you could, I need you to prepare something encouraging for the people because it's the Sunday right after the election. And I don't know what's gonna happen and where we're gonna be. And then he texted me a few weeks ago and he said, you know what, we just started a series called Red Letters. And, and I want you to just continue on in the series. So can you preach uh, Luke chapter 10 for me? And I said, absolutely, Pastor, whatever you want me to do. And as I began to work through this passage and, and look at uh, what we find here, I noticed just how applicable this passage of scripture is to where we are. And it actually fulfills Pastor Brandon's desire for me to preach uh, something encouraging to you after uh, this election that we've seen. So if you're anything like me, you saw what took place uh, Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning, and uh, you now know that uh, uh, Donald Trump will be our, our next president um, and uh, regardless of how you feel about that or, or, or who you voted for, I can, I can attest that many uh, black people are, are, are hurting inside. Many people of color are hurting inside. And, and I know this because I've seen your social media posts. We, we, we don't hold back on social media. We share how we're feeling, when we're feeling. And, and this is one of those times where the hurt was so raw and it was so deep uh, that, that I'm reading people's posts and I'm reading your Facebook posts and your tweets and I'm reading the, 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 uh, the blogs that you're sharing and the articles uh, that you're sharing. And there's a lot of hurt there. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of confusion. And oftentimes when, when that happens, uh, when, when we experience hurt and anger and pain and confusion, our natural reaction is to, is to close off and build a wall around ourselves to protect ourselves from being hurt further. And this is what I sense happening uh, with, with God's people, uh, particularly in urban settings, particularly of the minority persuasion, because uh, if I can, I want to share a little secret with you. This country is very divided. And the church in America is equally, if not more so, divided. And hear me saying this, I've, I've, I feel you, I'm, I'm with you. I, I was angry, not surprised by the results, by any means of the imagination, because we've, we've, we've had plenty of racist presidents before. This, this country has, has been racist for a long time by a vast majority, so I wasn't surprised. 
I was angry. I was hurt a little bit, but, but I, I wasn't uh, surprised. But, but people of God, let me tell you this. The one thing that we cannot do is begin to build a wall around ourselves to the point where we now only engage those people who think like us. Those people who agree with what we agree with. Those people that it's easy to love and walk alongside of. And, and, and it's funny that we find ourselves in this passage because right here I believe that, that, that Jesus was trying to tell us something that so speaks to the heart of what he wants from us right now today. Let's look at this passage. Verse 25, it says, And behold, the lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, uh, just a, a little background before we really get in. Before this, Jesus has sent out the 72, 72 of his followers, and he sent them out to towns uh, before he was going to go there. And he said, uh, when you get to these towns, if they, if they accept you, then go into their houses, stay there, heal their sick, cast out the demons, and, and stay there as long as they'll have you. If they reject you, then shake off your shoes, but still let them know that the kingdom of God is near and is on its way, and they need to be ready for it. And so his followers come back, and Jesus is debriefing with them, and he asks them for a report, and, and they're, they're excited. The Bible says that they're rejoicing uh, because of how much power they have. It says that, that they rejoice me and they say, Jesus, man, 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 we get to cast out demons and heal sick. And, and then Jesus responds by giving them a subtle rebuke. He says to them, he says, I want you to rejoice not in the power that you have, but that you're known by God. That your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, he, he wanted them to not be focused on the power at work, but in the result of what the power at work was supposed to achieve, which was changed and transforms lives and people who are now known by God. And so as he's debriefing with him, this lawyer comes up, verse 25, and, and he's, it says he stands up as Jesus is talking and he puts Jesus to the test. Now, this is not uncommon because oftentimes when you see Jesus' interactions with these religious leaders, the Pharisees and, and the scribes and the Sadducees, uh, the, the, the authors often indicate the motivations of their hearts. And so here Luke lets us know that, that the lawyer was not asking a genuine question of Jesus because he simply didn't know. It says that he wanted to put Jesus to the test. He wanted to see if Jesus really knew what he was talking about. Now, mind you, the, the more and more Jesus taught, the more these people looked at him and said, man, this dude teaches different than these religious leaders. There's something about what this guy is saying. It says that he taught them with authority, like one who had authority. And the more that Jesus taught, the more that he healed people, the more that he cast out demons, the people's hearts were slowly being turned from the religious system that they had known to the heart of Jesus. And the religious leaders couldn't have that because that, that messed up the economy of power. It messed up the economy of money. For them, And so they often approach Jesus trying to trip him up in what he was teaching to show, him, to show the people that he wasn't really credible. He didn't know what was going on. So Luke lets us know. He says, he says man, the lawyer stood up to test them saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what's interesting about this question is uh, 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 the word do and inheritance. The inheritance is typically dictated by the giver, not the receiver. Yeah. 
And so when you inherit something, there's nothing that you can do to earn an inheritance because you didn't make up what, uh, you, you had nothing to do with like how you get the inheritance. Only the person that gives the inheritance can give you the inheritance because they can always change the limitations of what's needed in order to earn it. So the question in and of itself doesn't even really make sense. What do I do to earn the inheritance of eternal life? There's nothing you can do. It's an inheritance. It has to be given to you. But that, nevertheless, he asked Jesus this question, and I, and I love Jesus because I, I love how he engages people because typically Jesus doesn't just respond by answering your question. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Like when you, when you, you really want something and you're trying to talk to God, you really need to hear from God and you're just, you're just waiting around, like just waiting from this, this majestic voice from heaven where you cry out to God and you've been on your, on, on, you know, in your secret closet and in, in your word and, and you just need to hear from God and you feel like you're not hearing from him. Well, let me, typically God responds with a question. And so here, he doesn't just answer his question, what do I need to do to, inter to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't give him the answer. What does he say? He says, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? And how do you read it? How do you understand it? How do you interpret it? So he asks Jesus a question and Jesus immediately responds with a question to him so he can answer his own question. Because Jesus wants to know where he is. And so this guy, this lawyer, this interpreter or, uh, of the law answers and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength and with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, you've answered correctly. He affirms his answer. He responds to Jesus and tells Jesus what he wants to hear. He tells him what's in the law. And Jesus says, you're right. That's exactly what it says. Then in verse 29, it says, but he, but the lawyer Again, Luke lets us know the intentions of his heart, the motivations of his heart. It says he was desiring to justify himself. So Jesus asked him the question, and, and this guy who, he, he knows that he knows the law. He knows that he knows God's word. So when Jesus asked him the question, it was easy for him to let Jesus know what the law said. But then it says, you know, you know I, I, see, I, I know, Jesus, I know the law. I, I know what your word says. You can't trip me up with that one. But then he says, you know, you know, but desiring to justify himself, Jesus, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Because basically in his mind, he had already concluded in his mind that he was doing all of those things that he just told Jesus in the law. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. I'm doing that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I'm, I'm doing that too. But, but I also want the people to know that I'm doing that because I, you, maybe, maybe I'm the only one where, you know, the word of God is being taught or preached and you immediately think about somebody else because you know you're not doing none of that stuff. Like, like God's word never applies to you because you just, like, I'm, I'm, well, I'm killing it there. So I, I, I'm thinking about somebody I know I should have brought with me. It's, that one person will never come to church or always ask me for advice and don't listen. Like this for them, I wish they was here. And then you start trying to think of little ways you can kind of slide them the sermon or, 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 or teach them something that you learn, and you never apply it to your heart. And this is what's happening here. So desiring to justify himself in his own heart, he says, well, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus, again, in Jesus' fashion, doesn't just answer his question. He begins to tell him this story. And it's a familiar story that many of us 
have heard, but I, I want to look at it in a, in a particular way. It says there was a man uh, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him up, and then they left him for dead. It just so happened uh, that a priest comes down that same way and, and, and sees the man, and it says that the, the priest crosses the street and keeps walking. Then it says that, that a Levite, uh, same way, coming down the same route, crosses the street, sees the man crosses the street, keeps walking. A Samaritan comes along and sees the man that has compassion, takes him to an inn, takes care of him, uh, and, 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 and then tells the innkeeper to, to get him well until I return. And so there's a, there's a few things that, that we need to look at uh, as it relates to these characters. So you have uh, the priest. Now, the priest was uh, a member of uh, the tribe of Levi, and they were tasked with being a mediator between God and the people. And so they, they were the ones who offered the sacrifices on behalf of the people and, and did the work in the temple on behalf of the people. These, they, these were like the, 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 the ultimate religious leaders to be looked up to. These were the, the group of people who were set aside as, as holy in a very particular way to be used by God in a very special way to help draw the people near to God. Then you have the Levites. The Levites were also of the tribe of, uh, of Levi and, and they worked with the priests and helped to kind of maintain uh, the temple and the work that was to be done in the temple. And so these, these would be like your, your deacons and deaconesses and your, your leaders uh, in the church. So we're, we're talking about the upper class of religious leadership here. And it's interesting that the most religious people in Jewish society are the same ones that saw this man beaten and left for dead and passed by on the other side. It's interesting that, that, that Luke here records the same phrase for both groups of people, for the, the Levites and the priests. And it says they saw the man and they passed by on the other side. I think it's, there's a danger when we as the religious community, for whatever reason, whether it be fear, whether it be just a lack of time, a lack of care, a lack of priority, where we see hurting people, broken people, and we pass by on the other side because we don't have time to really help. You, you've got too much baggage Imagine what was probably going on in the mind of this priest and this Levite. Well, man, I could stop, but, but then I won't get to where I have to be on time. And you know, if I'm late, then that means that I don't respect other people's time and, and, and God won't honor that. So in order for me to respect other people's time and remain godly, I've got to stay on track and not help this man. Well, Man, that means I got to stop and get him some clothes. I, I only got enough money to get my coffee when I get to Jericho. So I don't have money to help this man. I only have one horse. And, and I want to ride it because my feet are a little tired too. I work hard. But if I put him on my horse or my donkey, then that means I have to walk. And so we, we, we see this, and then we see that this Samaritan comes along. 
Now, what's interesting was uh, the, the Samaritans were seen as this, this mixed group of, of people. They were known as half-breeds, a, a racially and ethnically diverse group of people uh, that stemmed from uh, when the, the Jews had been defeated and exiled into Babylon. And what happened was the Babylonians came in and as they're taking people out, they only took the strong people or the people who were well off and they left all the people who had already been marginalized. Now, you know it's bad that when your people gets conquered and the group that comes in and conquers doesn't want you either. Because they weren't worried about you fighting back. They weren't worried about you revolting because the people, your people, who they took had already deemed you unworthy. And so what, who was left behind was the sick and the poor and the orphaned and the widowed. All of these people were left behind and what began to happen was they began to intermarry with some of the other people groups that were around. And then this group became known as the Samaritans. And so uh, they were like rivals with uh, the Israelites, the Jews at the times, because the, they worshiped at Mount Gerizim and the Jews worshiped down in Jerusalem. And so they argued about the scriptures all the time. And so they knew that there was some connection uh, between them, but they differed on everything theologically on where the place of worship was. We see a lot of this information as Jesus uh, interacts with the woman at the well in John chapter four. And so from a Jewish perspective, uh, uh, the Samaritans were the worst kind of people. I mean, the absolute worst kind of people, so much so that if they had to get to the northern part of, uh, of, of the area, to the land, they would walk around Samaria uh, and take a longer route rather than walk through because they didn't even want to have to run, run into anybody who was a Samaritan. Could you imagine putting extra days on your journey just because you didn't want to see a particular people group? That's how much they hated these people. That for, for them, the only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. This, this, is, this is how the race relations were with the Jews and the Samaritans. And so for the Jewish community, the idea of being a good Samaritan, though common in our culture, was, an, it was oxymoronic. There was no such thing as a good Samaritan. And so we read this passage and, and our first inclination is to, is to identify with the Samaritan. But, but look, at Jew, look, look at Jesus' audience here. Jesus is, is interacting and engaged with the Jewish audience. And so as he's telling this story, it's clear, based on how Jesus tells stories, that he wants, his, he wants the people listening, he wants his audience to identify with a particular person in the story. Now, they wouldn't have identified with the priest because the, the priest passed by on the other side. The, the priest wasn't doing anything righteous or good or holy. They wouldn't have identified with the Levite because just as the priest did, the Levite went by on, on the other side. And, and so it leaves us with a number of people. But, but as we look at the background and the culture and the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, it's clear to us that they wouldn't have identified with a Samaritan either. Had Jesus attempted 
to get them to identify as a Samaritan, they, they would have cut him off and stopped listening. You, you do that too. You know, when you're in a conversation with somebody and maybe you guys are disagreeing or, or maybe you're having an argument with somebody. I do this with my wife sometimes. I've repented though. Um, where you're, you're arguing with somebody and they say something that you don't like, that you really don't like. And then even though you're still arguing, you're not listening to anything they're saying. Okay, I'm the only one. All right, okay, all right, all right. That's, that's fine, that's fine. I brought my own amens with me, amen, Pastor Kirk. Y'all, y'all can act funny if you want to, but, but y'all know what, exactly what I'm talking about. All it takes is somebody saying the wrong thing and you've immediate, they've immediately lost you. I know, I know in my, my conversations, I'll, I'll give you an example. In my conversations uh, uh, with, with some people, if they, if they tell me race doesn't, racism doesn't exist anymore, it's hard for me to get back into that conversation. Does that make sense now? Okay, I just want to make sure we're on the same page, right? If Jesus was communicating, oh, I thought, I thought somebody was behind me, Lord. <laughs> If, 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 if Jesus was just communicating that we should do acts of mercy, there would be no need for him to give the religious affiliation of these groups. There will be no need for Jesus to say that there was a priest or that, to say that there was a Levite. He could have just said that person one walked by, person two walked by, and the third person showed mercy. Be like the third person. If Jesus was illustrating that we needed to love our enemies, then the man in the ditch would have been the Samaritan. Because we would have been the good Jewish people that helped out the people that we didn't like. The people who were enemies to us. But what's interesting is, if we're not the priests, and if we're not the Levites, and we're not the Samaritan, then who are we? Now, it's, it's interesting when we get to the man that as Jesus, as Jesus begins to describe this man, uh, there's not much that we know about him. This man half dead in the ditch. Luke gives no indication of his race or his ethnicity, his social status, his religion, his uh, sexual orientation. We don't know much about this man at all. All that we know is that it was impossible to really know whether or not this guy was a neighbor in the sense that we see neighbors because we see neighbors as people who are like us, people that we like, people that we socialize with, people who get us. And all we know about this man is that we don't know who he is. But here's what we can surmise from what we don't know based on what we do know. We know that he didn't just receive love from a stranger, but from a perceived enemy. We, we know that he was, a, he was helpless against receiving this love. There was nothing he could do to stop this Samaritan from loving him. He had to receive it. He was too weak to fight it off. There, we know that he was in a position where love could not be rejected he was in a position of lowliness. He was defeated. He was hurting. He was vulnerable and he was dying. Listen to me. Jesus was trying to get the lawyer to understand uh, 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 that he was in a position of need. That 
that he was in a position of needing to be rescued. See, in the lawyer's mind, as he tried to justify himself, what Jesus saw was he saw a person who was too strong and too independent. He saw a, 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 a person who was too uh, comfortable in where life had put them thus far. And what Jesus was trying to get him to understand was you are the person in the ditch. You are the person in the ditch. Why, why can I say that? I can say that because Romans chapter 5 verse 8, Paul says that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for for you. Jesus, a perceived enemy, had to come in and, 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 and save a broken, hurting, dying people who didn't want to be loved, but who also could not save themselves. You, my friends, are in the ditch. You don't get the privilege of calling yourself a Samaritan, being the person who comes and helps people who just need your help. No, 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 no. That puts you in a position of power. That, that puts you in a position of, of righteousness. And that's not who you are, who you are if you're honest with yourself. You're a person who's in need of saving. Jesus here is telling his audience, no, my friends, you are the ones in the ditch. And I'm the enemy who's coming to save you. Now, but I love what uh, Pastor Chris Brooks in his book, Urban Apologetics, does. He reminds us that oftentimes when we read this story, not only do we usually make ourselves the Samaritan, which in most cases, whenever we read stories, we always make ourselves in the story the person who Jesus is trying to exalt as doing the right thing. Oh, y'all just going to play me again, huh? <laughs> okay, all right. Maybe, well, that's what I do. When I'm reading these stories, I'm like, man, these Jews are so stupid. Man, the disciples have been walking with Jesus all this time and they still don't get it. I got it. Maybe it's just me. But Jesus here, but, but I love what Pastor Brooks does. He, he says, so often we, we, we put ourselves in the place of the Samaritan when we're actually the person in the ditch, but in a, in a, in a secondary way, in a secondary way, it's interesting that we never talk about the innkeeper. We never mention the, the innkeeper. This person who's just thrown in in the last verses of this story that doesn't seem to have any real role or responsibility, but there's something significant there that I don't want us to miss. And it's this, that the role of the innkeeper, look, well, let's read it. Look, look, look at what Jesus says. It says that, uh, go, go with me to verse 34. We'll start there. And it says, and he went to him. The Samaritan went uh, to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verse 35, it says, and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. And this is what he told the innkeeper. The innkeeper doesn't even have words. He doesn't even talk in this story. This is what the Samaritan says to the innkeeper. It says, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. There are going to be people in your lives that the Lord is going to just drop off. 
and tell you to take care of. And it's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you your own resources. And you don't know how long you're going to have to take care of them. Because all the text says is take care of them until I return. See, there's an expectation for God's people that when people are dropped off at your doorstep, people who are unlike you, people who don't think like you, who don't share your values, who don't share your ideologies, people who may even be your enemy. Jesus says, listen, when, when I pick them off and drop them off at your doorstep, will you be ready to receive them? See, see my fear is that we've gotten to a place where we've experienced the hurt of oppression and sexism and racism and we've shut our doors to the possibility that God would ever send somebody like that to us to minister to. And so it's easy as we're, as we're here in Brooklyn, and I know, I know Brooklyn is becoming more and more gentrified, but it's, it would be easy for us to be in a neighborhood in a community like this to only go after certain types of people and refuse the care of God, the mercy of God on those who would be our enemies. The elite, the wealthy, the privileged. And so here, here, this is what, this is what God is, is ultimately trying to say. Very simple in this passage. Ultimately, what he's trying to say is that we were saved to look like Jesus. Get, get this, don't stop there. I know we like that. We're saved to look like, yeah, let's look like Jesus. Looking like Jesus involves loving and caring for people that don't look anything like us. If you don't take anything home from this passage, it says your, your neighbor is everybody and anybody who gets dropped off into the end of your life that I call you to take care of. Doesn't matter how much money they make. Doesn't matter how they view you. It doesn't matter whether or not they've believed in me or not. It doesn't matter if they're open to hearing the gospel. It doesn't matter if they're repenting of their sins. When I drop somebody off in your life, Will your heart be in the proper place to receive them and to care for them until I return? See, we, we take the position of being like Jesus because he was, he was the first neighbor, the first one to love his neighbors as himself. Jesus came from the perfection of heaven, the perfection of eternity. We, we, our minds can't even grasp how extremely dope it was to be in the presence of the Father and, and then to humble yourself to come to this trifling earth with this trifling creation that rejected you and then to have the audacity to give up your life for them. 
And so that's, that's what he's calling us to. He's saying, he's saying if you want to be like me, it, it means that you're going to have to die to some things. And the ver- some of the very things that I've given you, you're going to have to give up just so you can love and engage people who don't love you back. Remember that Romans 5, 8. The reason I love that verse so much is because while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He didn't wait for you to get it right. He didn't wait for you to change your mind about him. He didn't wait for you to come off your high horse. It says, says, while you were still an enemy of God, while you were still a sinner, he decided to die for you. That's my prayer for us today as the people of God. Is that as we look at where our country is, as we look at the division, as we look at the fear mongering and the hate, that we would not become a people who turn inward and become comfortable with only engaging those who share our views, but that we would be willing and open and patient and loving enough to be ready to receive those who may be a perceived enemy. Trust me, I know it's hard. Loving people not like you is not easy. But that's what it means to be like Jesus. That's my prayer for us today. Let's pray. Father God, as we talk through this passage and what it means to love our neighbors, as we even look at who our neighbors are, I pray that we would be encouraged not only by your example, but that we would be encouraged because you have given us the power of God through the Holy Spirit to actually walk out what you're calling us to. Your word says that you've already placed before us every good work that you want us to walk in. And all we have to do is move our feet in obedience and walk in it. Your word says that because the power of God through the power of the Holy Spirit works in us, that we can walk in the spirit and not satisfy the desires of our flesh. And oftentimes the desires of our flesh is isolation. Oftentimes the desires of our flesh is to return hate for hate. The desires of our flesh is to allow our frustrations to justify not loving our enemies, which is what you've called us to do. God, I know we're in a rough place. Many of us are hurting. Many of us are still emotionally raw and broken. And it's hard for us to even fathom being in a position where we have to love and care for those who have oppressed us for so long. And Father, the beautiful thing about being in relationship with you is that you allow us to be honest. You give us room to be honest with you and to, to share how we're hurting, to share what we're struggling with. And yet at the same time, you don't, allow us to use that fear as a reason not to obey. And so, Father, I pray that as a community of people, we would constantly be encouraging one another 
to walk in forgiveness, to walk in the pursuit of righteousness, and to walk in love. And I'll admit, God, that that's hard. And I don't always do that perfectly. And there are many times I don't want to. But if you could love a sinner like me, if you could come near and patiently walk with a broken person like me, with, even though I'm saved, God, you're still walking with me through the moments where I disagree with you the moments where I sin and disobey you and you're still patiently walking with me, that, that you being a neighbor to me wasn't a one-time event. That's a, a lifetime. God, I pray that we would remember that, that the way that you walk with us would be the way we, we walk with others. Allow us to be a community that encourages one another to do that and to do that well. So Father, we need you. We desperately need you because we know that we can't do it on our own. So we pray, God, that day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, we would be careful to do everything to the glory of your name, that we might be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in the only name that matters, the name of our King, our Savior, our Lord, the name of Jesus Christ. All of God's people said amen. Amen. amen.